This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. How our idolatry does not just estrange us from God and cause us to think, man, I just don't feel as close to the Lord as I wish I did. It impacts horizontal relationships. So this is a straight-up hour on that. And as Scott indicated, listen, I'm not making big bucks from the book. You know, if you know anything about writing, like, keep your day job. This is, <laughs> this is you know, just like with artists, believe it or not, when they sell a CD, the, the record company makes lots of money. They make almost nothing. That's true with books, too. And I didn't go into it with money for money, but oh, how I want people to understand this. So you can see we're just scratching the surface, you guys. So if this has piqued your interest, please do consider getting the book because I have an entire chapter on how idolatry affects your identity, an entire chapter on, on what lo- it starts to when you try to be your own savior. I've got many other issues that we don't have time to address. So if this, this is like something you want to know more, consider getting the book. And then if you go to my website, not the church website, but I have a site, bradbigney.com. You can get a free study guide that you can download that would help you engage, and it is excellent. I didn't write it. A guy in my church wrote it for our small groups, and I use it with my counselees, and it's really good that will walk you through applying the chapters as you read them. And then if you're more of an audio person, and you're like, it's just more helpful for me to hear someone explain it, on the website, there, I think there are, it's either 9, 10, or 11 messages that are videos that are, all this is free. So if you go to my, you could see me doing more messages about this, but consider getting the book perhaps if you're like, I just need to think about this some more. But in this hour, we're gonna try to tease out a little more how this impacts relationships because I hope as you've gotten excited to think, oh, how, how I might be freer, how I might know the Lord better, and how this might help the people around me that I just wouldn't need as much. Paul Tripp says this, do you have any conflict in your life? Do you experience moments of extreme irritation towards someone you otherwise love? Are there people who simply push your buttons more than others? Do certain things drive you crazy on a daily basis? Why does it seem that people, things, and situations are in our way? Why do we seldom go through a day without some experience of conflict? The answer to all these questions is that we think of our lives as our own and we are more committed to the purposes of our own kingdom than we are to God's. Now often you can substitute right there, my little kingdom of pursuing and building a protective wall around my idols. We're more committed to the purposes of our own kingdom than to God's. We need to recognize that the people in our way have been sent to us by a wise and sovereign king. He never gets, I love this next statement, he never gets a wrong address and he always chooses just the right moment to expose our hearts and realign them to his. It's not fun, but a church conflict, a work conflict, a neighborhood conflict, a health issue, you name it, these are occasions, always keep in mind, it's not just like, oh, not this, not now, God, what? God is committed to us. He's good, but he is committed. You think about that verse in Philippians, that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you shall complete it. And I hope you realize without giving the details, what is one of the most effective ways that God completes that good work? Easy times or hard times? I wish it wasn't true, you guys, but nobody says to me, oh, Pastor Brad, Wow, I grew like never before this year. I mean, my kids all scored and got in the schools I want. I got a huge salary increase. Hair grew back on my head. My wife lost 40 pounds. Oh my goodness. And I just sent my roots deep in Christ. Never, ever. When things are good, what do we do? We drift and we forget God. We don't need him. It's, I, I can't tell you how many people have said, oh my goodness, I would never have chosen it, but when my wife got breast cancer, when our child went prodigal, when I was unemployed, I had no idea what that felt like. That was so shattering. Everything that comes out of their mouth that I hear someone say, I've grown. Now, don't hear me saying it's automatic, that 
adversity automatically makes you more like Christ. It could, you could choose to get bitter, but it, there's the possibility that you could grow. You could grow, and God begins to complete what he started, but it's not easy, usually, at all. Even like with my sweet wife, I hope you realize I have the same mixed emotions that you do about these things. When, when, when I received news, this was not easy. I'm in Montana teaching at a conference. When she calls, weeping, saying she's about be, to be taken to the emergency room because she's lost all movement in her arms, legs, bowels, everything. It has no idea what's going on. Can you imagine that? Like, oh, wow, and I'm supposed to speak in five minutes. And so I speak by the grace of God, and then I have a two-hour break before I'm supposed to speak again. And I just go outside, and I get in a chair, and I cry out to God, and I say, God, I have no idea what's going on. She's in the emergency room, da-da-da-da-da. And, of course, my mind is spinning, what, 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 what? And we're make, I'm making phone calls with an ER doctor at our church. And anyway, my first thought was, oh, and immediately, I had, I had this sense from God that I'm with you, and I'm up to something good. I'm with you, and I'm up to something good. And I was like, all right, God, all right, God, I'm going to trust you. And then I, I actually remembered as I was sitting there, three weeks before, I'd been sitting on my patio behind our house reading my Bible, because this was early spring, or late spring, bumping up to summer. And I, it was another, if you read your Bible, all of it, guess what you'll see a lot of? adversity trials suffering and i literally because we've had two children rebel i've had that ear thing i won't bore you with everything i had that whole church thing and i literally sat there and said "Ooh, it's been a while since i've really suffered something just really shattering and my first thought was fear oh what's it gonna be and my second thought was he's good he's a good father He's a good father. And I think he was prepping me. That as I sat behind the church there in Montana, I thought, all right, I remember that moment. Because I said, Lord, I'll trust you. Whatever else you were to bring into our life, you've carried us through it always. You will be good. And so then when we learned, and I'm sitting behind Mon the building, and I'm learning more what's going on, it's like the Lord said to me, Brad, you've preached three marriage sermon series since you've been at the church. Because at the time, I'd been there like 23 years. You now will have an opportunity to put on display to the church family what it looks like for a husband to sacrificially love, serve, and care for his wife. And I got excited. I got excited and hopeful. Now, of course, I hoped that she would walk again. And by God's grace, she's not in a wheelchair and she can walk but I've stayed excited, you guys. I don't, it's not like, how could God do that? And I'm, because sometimes Christians have that mentality. Those that are serving him and being used should be co totally protected from anything hard, right? It's the people not tithing and not hosting a small group that should have bad things happen to them <laughs> to show them that they should teach a children's class. But very often it's someone serving God that these things, quote, happen. They don't just happen. They come through the hands of a love. I always say, everything that comes into your life, believer, is father-filtered. It comes through his hands first, and he's good. And I am still excited about, it's my chance to lean in and serve her more. There's things, and, and our love for each other has only deepened. We already had a really good marriage. It is even better, better by God's grace. And so I vacuum. There's things that she can't do. You know, you, let me say something to you. When you want to really bless someone, find out what they want you to do. You know, because it's a typical guy. I'm like, we'll pay for women to come clean the house. She's like, God forbid, no. I don't know why. She didn't want women in our house cleaning it. I, th I thought that would be a huge blessing. She's like, please, no. I said, well, what would mean the most to you? She said, you vacuuming every week. Because we had five kids. The carpet was awful. We tore it out. We paid big bucks for gorgeous hardwood floors, oak, that's been sanded, covered with gloss, sanded, covered with gloss, sanded, covered with gloss. They are pretty. And she wants them to stay pretty. If there's any grit on there, it'll scratch it. She said, vacuum. And when you want to bless someone, I mean, do it right, not halfway. I put the nozzle on, and I get in the corners. I do the steps. It was like every Friday, like clockwork. And since I was with you, then I had to do it on Thursday, or I'll do it on Monday, but it's going to happen because I am type A. 
This is going to happen. Sometimes she thinks it's not going to happen. I was like, you thought it wasn't going to happen, didn't you? It's happening. Yep. I'm going to vacuum. And when I'm vacuuming, sometimes she'll come out of the bedroom. She's like, I like a man that vacuums. I'm like, and I'll take the little cord and I'll whip it. And I'll say, I know. And I'm going to have something left, girl. You go rest up. <laughs> but it's fun. You know, now I just, I just pray constantly. God, prompt me. Prompt me to lean in before she has to ask for help. What might she, and it's just a joy. And so, and I'm not saying the whole church knows everything we're doing, but maybe somehow they'll know some. God is good. He's good, and now we're more dependent on him. So much of what God does or allows into your life will actually cause you to feel weaker and less on top of your game and less, but that's where he likes us, you guys. He's not a bad, but think about it. In our weakness, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, then his strength is made perfect. We tend to think, I could serve God best with no limitations, nothing hard in my life. Probably not. There'd be too much of you, and you're in the way. It's when we're weak, and we depend on him and need him that, oh, his power and his grace shows up. Conflict often is the result of what's going on in my heart. And God brings a new supervisor, a new neighbor, a new whatever in circumstances not to just make your life miserable, but to move us forward with conformity to Christ. And, and nobody makes you anything. It, it just exposes. Now, I'm old enough that we didn't have iPhone cameras and digital cameras and all that, but how many of you remember when you had to actually take film and if you're really into it, you clipped it on a little line in a dark room? Yes, this was a big process to come up with pictures, but if you know anything about it, you would take it and you would dunk it down in some harsh chemicals and you're in a dark room and you hang it and gradually that picture would show up. The picture was always on the film, you guys. The harsh chemicals and the darkness were the occasion for it to show up. Very often, adversity, darkness, we're in a dark valley. I wouldn't have chosen that. God works and does some great things in the dark, in the valley, in adversity. Now, don't hear me saying, so please, every day pray, God, bring me some adversity. I've never prayed that, ever. Enough happens. But if we could reach a point to say, God, when it happens, I'm not going to assume you've abandoned me. What are you up to? What are you doing? And let your first thought be, show me more of my heart. Show me more of my heart. I don't want to waste this. I, don't, I remember praying one day when I still had the horrible ear condition. God, now this was a scary prayer, but I thought he wanted me to pray it. God, don't take this away until you've done everything in me that you want to do through this. Here's sometimes what we're guilty of. We're in such a hurry to get through the trial, end it. We're looking for the first exit door. I got I to gotta tell you, if you do that, he will just bring a new thing. He's going to do what he meant to do. So I don't, I don't, I say, God, do it now. Do what you want to do in me because I don't want you to just give me round two of a different but similar trial what is it that you're up to Dave Harvey confesses after I was saved and before I was married I've kind of indicated this too playing my guitar in the woods loving Jesus for hours after I was saved and before I was married I lived under the mad undaunted delusion that I was spiritually mature mine was a rich and largely imaginary kind of holiness if ignorance is bliss I was in permanent ecstasy the infrequent, notice this, the infrequent examinations of my seemingly innocent heart revealed little need for improvement. Then it happened. I got married and I became a blame shifter. John Bettler has said, your spouse always hooks your idol. But marriage didn't simply hook my idols. It hoisted them six feet in the air and towed them around the house. I can't tell you how many times I thought, I never had these problems before. This must be my wife's fault. The truth is, I'd always been a blame shifter. It's just that after getting married, there were so many more good opportunities to express this fault. And see, 
That's why marriage is so hard when people say, what is so hard? It's not just that you differ on things. What is so hard for us? You're living at such close range with someone else. It pushes to the surface things about you that you don't like seeing. I never thought of myself like this until now. You must have done this. Because we like thinking very well of ourselves. We do not like thinking ill of ourselves or seeing bad things about us. But until we're aware of it, you can't even begin to change when you're living with an imaginary holiness. Husbands, wives, kids, bosses don't cause you to sin. They put enough pressure on your heart that what was there all along comes spilling out. So why do the idols of my heart and your heart create conflict and confusion with others? Three reasons. Number one, your idols have declared war on everyone else around you. Now, I hope you don't think that sounds too strong because that's actually how the Bible talks. Go to James 4. I told you Ezekiel 14 one day. It's my favorite Old Testament passage for informing us. James 4, 1 to 3. Let's go there now. James 4, 1 to 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He's not talking about one nation coming against another nation. He's talking about relationally relationships what causes fights and wars among you do they not come from your desires that battle within you so notice he's saying before you ever have a war with any anyone around you there's an internal war you've got your own war with desires and what you're wanting and what you're trying to sort out and build your world around where you think you'll find security you want something but don't get it You kill and covet. He's not talking about literally. But think about how often you think, if I could, and I knew I wasn't going to be in an orange jumpsuit shuffling around with ankle bracelets, I'd kill you. You're in my way. You're in my way. They make me so... That's what he's talking about. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Then, here's that whole thing when prayer doesn't work. You don't have because you don't ask. So sometimes we're not even asking. We're complaining, complaining, complaining. I say, have you prayed about it? Well, no, I haven't. But then they say, I did. It doesn't work. Well, he answers that too. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you, NIV is actually my favorite translation, because you ask with wrong motives. New King James says you ask amiss. You're asking, wanting this. You've got your sights set on this, and you just want to use God to help you get it. God, do this, do this, do this. You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Instead of saying, God, show me my own heart. Why am I so mad? Why is this so frustrating? Why do I feel this way towards them? See, the biggest problem is not your spouse or someone else around you. The real problem under the surface of all of our conflicts is that there's two kingdoms in conflict. Both of us can't rule and reign at the same time. What we both want, these two agendas are crashing into each other. I've told you early in our marriage, without realizing it, I wanted to be thought of as the best pastor in the world, and I thought that was commendable. But I didn't see the dark side and the ugly side of, I love being loved. So there's my agenda. I want to be the best pastor in the world. And she is early in marriage, and she's thinking, I want to be thought of as the best mother with the best home and the best family. So you can imagine the conflicting agendas. She wants me home. She wants me with board games. She wants us doing things together. My agenda causes me to say yes to more stuff and to be gone. There's going to be a war. These two things are not going to work out together. And I know it doesn't sound as ugly as pornography and drug abuse and adultery, but the war that broke out between us and our little mobile home was as ugly as things get. And we couldn't figure out. We talked in circles continually. When you have an agenda and a heart thing, I would just say what I would say, and I would think I would say it very with great articulation and illustrate it one more time. And she used to say all the time, I'm not as good of a talker as you, and I can't talk as fast, and I can't think as fast, but you didn't just win. I don't know what to say right now, but I'm not convinced. And that used to tick me off. I'm thinking if you don't have a rebuttal and you can't break down that argument, I just won. Say I won. And she wouldn't give me what I wanted. And she, her favorite thing, she would just do this. She'd go, she said, that's me pulling down the window shade on you right now. I was like, oh, girl, you're ticking me off. <laughs> 
right? But I wasn't getting what I wanted. I would just talk and serve. I would come back at it one more time and use my teaching gift to illustrate. And, you know, do I need to draw you a diagram? Like, how are you not getting this? But she knew something that I didn't know. Something's off with him. And I'm, I'm not going to submit to this. I'm not going to buy into this. And I couldn't see it. And I, I was convinced that when we, we need to go to counseling. Good, let's go, because you need help. Right? In a million years. And here's what's so funny. Of course I knew it wasn't perfect. I thought, he'll have tweaks for me and overhaul for him, like her. Like renovation, bring the bulldozer. You know? That's how we always think. Every couple that I start with thinks, the other person needs massive help. And I have a few things like, you know, like, like parsley on the side of the plate. Just My sin is a garnish. Hers is the meal. You know, you just think, the sooner they repent of their issues, the sooner this will be a great marriage because their stuff is the main stuff. That's how self-deceived we are. Now, I do want you to know... She was a sinner, and she had things she needed to repent of. I just don't talk about it, because I'm not stupid. I'm the, I'm the, right? Because sometimes we have to be careful. At the end of a conference, because we do marriage conferences together, if you're not careful, everyone can conclude, wow, men are awful, because I'm so transparent. As soon as the men repent, oh, she had stuff. But it's not right to talk about other people's stuff. So she repented. What, what changed our marriage is I owned my sin and saw my idolatry and said, God, help me. And she owned her sin and saw her and said, God, and oh my goodness. We only met with that man six times. I've never met with someone six times. I mean, but praise God, God worked quickly. Now, some of it was poverty. You know, this man was doing this for a living. It was $25 a session. He gave us half off. We had to get childcare. We had two kids, and it was $25 a session. Childcare plus $25, and I'm making $10,000 a year. So it's like, I mean, don't resist, honey. Repent. Whatever he says to you, <laughs> we can't afford for you to drag this out. Don't make this hard. If he says it, do it. That was 25 bucks. Don't make him say it another session. <laughs> we can't afford this. I'm working landscaping and at the church. Like, girl, we need food on the table. Just... But both of us, by God's grace, we were so hurting, so confused, had already been to two Christian counselors that hadn't helped us. In the goodness of God, we both were so ready. If you would just tell us, we'll do it. And it wasn't fun. I cried. She cried. But then we did what God, by His Spirit, helped that man to talk to us about. And oh, my goodness, the change that was possible, the path we got on. I mean, I ran out and bought a book called The Incompatible Couple. That's how bad I thought it was. I thought one of my worst moments ever was when I looked at her and said, I married the wrong person. Oh, but it's worse. And then I named another woman in the church I should have married. I said, I should have married Patty Hetty. And that's not because I was sexually drawn to her. It's just because she was that woman that would always let me bring the youth over. I was the youth pastor. And she didn't care if the Christmas tree got knocked over. Chili is spilled everywhere. She was so laid back and you could stay late. And I was convinced my wife is just not wound for ministry. You'll never work, girl. This just won't work with you. I can either please you or I can be an effective pastor. These two things don't go together. And that was a lie. She's a great pastor's wife. That's the work that God did, but I had to repent, own it, humble myself, see my own sin first, my own heart. Mm. Otherwise, you just, we were both doing it. You tend to retreat to your corners and lick your little wounds and rehearse how hard you have it. Oh, this is so sad, I can't believe, and then repeat it all over again. Ask God to show you what's happening on a heart level. Beneath the surface, this causing this war. What are you wanting? What are you, what are you protecting? What are you promoting? Number two, your idols, you need to realize your idols change the way you see and treat everyone else around you. It's like putting on a pair of, you know, sunglasses that are filtered or changed. The, I, I got sunglasses, these sunglasses I love. I love those sunglasses, I forget what they're called, and it makes the whole world brighter. The blues are bluer. The yellow's yellower. Orange is more orange. I hate sunglasses like, I think I'm gonna kill myself. Everything's just dark and depressing. I like bright, so I don't know what it's called, but I paid extra for that. My prescription sunglasses, oh, flowers are even more beautiful. Everything's more beautiful. Well, 
Those lenses have affected reality. Guess what? Your idols affect and change how you see everyone around you. So you're really not accurately perceiving other people. You think you are, but as long as you have this idolatry, it is affecting how you see people. So start there. If your heart, because here's the deal, if your heart is being ruled by a certain desire or a cluster of things, there's only two ways you can respond to everyone around you. If you're helping me get what I want, I'll let you in my life. I'll be happy with you. I'll treat you well. But if you stand in my way, I'll lash out at you. I'll push you away. I'll pout. I'll be frustrated. I'll shut you out of my life. So get this, because notice what's happening. So instead of loving people, I'm using people, using people, and even attacking people who get in my way. David Pallison says, I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility, and the accompanying fear, self-pity, hurt, self-righteousness, who really understood and reckoned with their motives. James 4, 1 to 3 teaches that, I love this phrase, cravings underlie conflicts. Cravings underlie conflicts conflicts why do you fight this is not because my wife or my husband this that or the other it's because of something about you couples who see what rules them cravings for affection attention power vindication control comfort a hassle-free life can repent and find God's grace made real to them and then learn how to make peace cravings underlie conflicts so think about where most of your conflict is right now in your life. Where it is, with whom it is, and then consider, maybe for the first time, what am I wanting? Am I bringing a craving to that situation? What, what underlies that conflict, perhaps? Number three, your idols ultimately hijack le legitimate desires. So, so many things that we want, it's not a problem wanting it initially. It's how much you want it and how much you build your life around it to the exclusion of other God-given responsibilities. Your idols ultimately hijack legitimate desires and turn them into ugly demands. So how does it turn into all-out war between two people who initially start out loving each other? Sometimes I have to remind couples, I'm like, you do realize we don't live in India. Nobody made you marry him. Like, what is going on? You chose him. Because some of us will act like there is nothing good, just nothing good. And I have to try to help people have eyes to see any evidence of grace because things are so bad now, you would think they were made to marry this person. No, you really weren't. And here's what's so interesting. Because so much of what we do in America was our own choice that was often led by feelings or what I think you'll do for me, and then it stops doing for me, often in other countries where it is an arranged marriage and it never started off with feelings, they do better. Does that make sense? They do better because they don't head into it and they have to actually learn to love each other, which I hope you realize is really what we all have to do. When the feeling wanes, and it will, what are you gonna do? We have a culture that acts like, oh, you lost that love and feel. I mean, every country song in the world is saying, I don't feel what I used to feel. Just shut up and learn to love. I wish someone would write that song. And so now I, now I got to learn to love her. Yes, you can learn because love is a choice. Love is a choice to give to the needs of another. And do you realize feelings follow? You, do you realize you can obey your way into a new feeling much faster than you can feel your way into obedience? We have a culture that's like, if I don't feel it, I shouldn't do it because I want to be authentic. They, they associate with the authenticity. I'm going to be real. If I don't feel it, I can't do it. If I don't feel it, I shouldn't do it. Even the nonsense in the career realm now, thanks to Oprah and people like that, don't do anything you don't love. Please shut up, Oprah. Some people just need to work a job. There's a reason they pay you because it's hard. It's not fun. You don't love it. It's called work. If you loved it, you'd do it for free. <laughs> but we got young people today like, I shouldn't do anything that I don't love, so that's why I'm a barista forever. Like, no, I love restoring Mustang cars. 
Well, good, do that on the weekend, dude. And then get a real job that's real hard that pays real money. But we've got this culture. I've got to feel it. I've got to, I mean, I, I hope you don't hate everything about it, but like, I do not love every aspect of being a pastor. You realize that? It's like, I love teaching preaching. Well, guess what? That's not the whole game. I have all those meetings. I have leadership. I have all kinds of stuff. So I say to myself continually, I do all this for the privilege of doing this. Most of you probably have a similar deal in your job. There's something about it you love. There's parts of it you really don't like, but you're mature enough, you keep moving forward. It's like, here's how I say it to my counselors, because they'll often say, well, I shouldn't do anything I don't actually feel. I don't love her, so why should we go on a date? Why should I do a loving deed? Because I don't love her. I don't want to be a hypocrite. You guys, a hypocrite is pretending that you are someone that you're not. Doing what God's word says to do, even when you don't feel it, is actually called maturity. So I'll say to them, hey, when your alarm goes off on Monday, do you launch out of bed saying, oh my goodness, I can hardly work for XYZ company again. And when you get there, is your supervisor in the parking lot as everyone spills out of the car, say, whoa, 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 we don't want any hypocrites. Anybody not feeling it today? Anybody not just totally jazzed? Get back in your car because we can't have you here. No, get to your desk and do it. They'll take you. That's why they pay you. And they'll just sit there. It's like almost like on this issue of relationships and marriage, etc. all of a sudden there's this huge cra- desire to be authentic. In other areas of our life, you choose to do, even when you don't feel, you can do it in your marriage. You can do it towards un, you know, difficult people by God's Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's like, ah. Oh. You gotta watch out because your, your, your legitimate desires can be hijacked and turned into ugly, ugly directions. In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, Paul Tripp walks through the stages of our heart that morphs from a legitimate desire all the way to war with someone else. We start off with normal desires, like I would love to be married. No sin there. I would love to have children. I would love to have godly children. I would love to do something meaningful in my life. I would love to have what I think would be appropriate retirement to be ready and not live in a Winnebago in my child's driveway. I would love to enjoy some, none of this is a sin. But what often happens, and here is how I illustrate to my counselees, a desire looks like this, and I'll put a mechanical pencil or a pen there. When you shift to this, often now it's become a demand. Oh, I must be married. I'm just not gonna be happy until I must have children. I must have, that's the difference. It shifts from desire to demand, the closing of my fist around a desire to where I, I can no longer imagine a good life without this thing. Now here's what happens then. So now I enter rooms with a silent demand. I don't have a sign around my neck that says, hey, watch out. You know, like the little dump trucks stay 50 feet back. We don't warn people. I just shifted from desire to demand. So this could get ugly because now this affects how I relate to people. Nobody gets a warning because we don't know we just did it, but it changes how you relate. There's a silent demand now, but we know that's ugly. And then our culture coddles us with pop psychology all the time. Everything in the world now is called a need. Well, you don't realize it's what I need based on the family I came from and what I've been through. I need, I just need a, hey, read your Bible. When you read your Bible, it's like water and food and air is pretty much all the Bible calls a need. Everything else is bonus. But our world just puts dozens of things in the category of need. I now view this thing as what I want as essential to life which is one more step towards slavery to desire, because if I think I need it, and you still aren't getting it, it starts to affect your relationship with God, because you're not just disappointed with other people, you're disappointed with him. You're like, he says he's a good God. He says he's a loving God. This is what I need, and he's still not doing it. It affects what you begin to think about God and what you, the demands you place on other people, and that's where it goes next expectations from desire to demand to need and now if I think I need this and you say you love me whether it's friendship 
or another brother or sister in Christ or a spouse, you should help me get this. If you say you love me, you should help. If, I can, if I'm convinced this is a need and you say you love me, it seems right for me to expect you to help me get this. Problem, usually everybody else is busy working on their own idols and expecting you to do for them and everybody leaves disappointed and nobody gets what they quote think they need because nobody's thinking of giving to the needs of another expecting nothing in return. Paul Tripp says this need driven expectation is the source of 90% of the conflicts in relationships. He's done a lot of counseling. I would agree. This need driven expectation is the source of 90% of the conflicts in relationships today. Because we start to see this thing as a right, a right, a right. And then inevitably, it leads to disappointment. I have this expectation. You don't meet it. I'm disappointed. It sets you up for disappointment. And that's what I was saying, how you'll hear people. It's like there's this story of everybody has disappointed them. It's possible that that's true, but it's also far more possible that they are that person that has headed into every relationship with a need-driven expectation that, of course, shatters and leaves them disappointed. In your minds, people have failed to meet your expectations. And usually then, especially in marriage, I see that leads to some form of punishment. By the time I get them in counseling, nobody comes with the first bump in the road usually. Like the couple I'm working with now, they've been married 17 years. As I'm working through the paperwork and there's some really bad stuff, I'm like, so how long have you been that way? Uh, well, how long have we been married? 17 years. 17 years. Oh, wow. That's why it's so hard. Because now they have shifted into, there was a war that broke out. It's been going on for 17 years and they are now relating to each other in very unhealthy ways, punishing each other. I had one couple, you see this often with guys. Women aren't so prone to this, but one of, guy, one of guys' favorite things is, I won't talk to you. For three days, I won't talk to you. She called it, guess what Bob is upset about. He just wouldn't talk to her for three days. That's how I'm gonna punish you. A favorite one is sex. We're not gonna have sex now. I, I always say, certainly I've touched on sexual issues in counseling, Sex is almost never the real issue and always the first casualty. Does that make sense? Because when a relationship isn't good, one or more doesn't want to be having sex. So that's just done. But that's almost never the problem. So I don't ever start there. I often go there before we're done counseling. But when other things are reconciled and there's forgiveness and bitterness is off the table and we've dug through the past and addressed things, that area can improve. It's almost never, ever the main issue, but a first casualty. Am I gonna have sex with you now? I had someone who's like, I'm not gonna set you a place at the table. I'm not gonna do your laundry. As I go through the hamper, I just divide it up. That's all your stuff, and I throw it on the floor. I looked at her, and I said, so how's that working? As he dropped to his knees and said, what must I do to be blessed by you, O woman? She didn't like that. I said, would you like to know what God would say about how to do this, right? In our human flesh, I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to get you to do what I want. That never works, ever. Even this little stuff. I remember Vicky bought some book. This was, you know, our problem started so far along. Dr. Dobson was the huge thing, you know, focus on the family. And she bought some yellow book, What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women, and she put it on the coffee table. Do you think I read that? <laughs> that ticked me off. I mean, I thought, even as a pastor, till you know what freezes over. I will not, I wouldn't read that if it was the only book in the world, despite how much I like to read. Because I thought, let me find a book for you, what husbands wish their wives knew about. That's why I don't even find it very helpful. You know, there's best-selling books like His Needs, Her Needs. Do you realize what happens when people read those books? Because they're very good, very good at explaining what each gender wants. How has that solved anything? When you read it, he's reading thinking, I hope she's paying attention to this because he is saying this so well. This is exactly what I need, exactly what I want. So as soon as she starts doing it, I'll do some of what she wants. She's reading it thinking, oh my goodness, he is articulating so well, or she, what women want. Man, as soon as he starts, we still have a stalemate. Who starts? 
So, so just articulating what everybody wants does not solve it. So I always start in my first session before I send them home, I always draw a triangle up here and say, God, and I do a little stick woman, a little stick man. And I'll say, I want to get you to stop looking like this, back and forth at each other, watching them, saying, man, as soon as they start, I want to get you this way, focused on pleasing God, and I give them that prayer, show me everything. I want you to focus 100% on anything God shows you, and say, God, I want to please you, and I'll say, watch what happens. As you begin to draw closer to the Lord, look what's happening in your relationship. It's closing the gap between the two of you. When you just keep it like this, I'm trying to, uh, you better do everything I want and she better do everything he wants. That's not how you solve this thing and it's not biblical. Each of you should begin to please God and some of what she's wanting is likely to happen, but some things maybe not. The goal isn't, let me tell you everything I want and you start doing it. Well, let me tell you everything I want. And you, here's what's so cool. When we both repented and began to please God, some of the things that I was making such a big deal of, I was like, I don't even know why that was whatever whatever. Even now, I hope you realize we don't have a great marriage because she closes all the drawers always. No, she doesn't. I found a Phillips screwdriver in the living room. That is not where that goes. But I'd been on a trip and I don't know what happened, but God forbid it was left there. Do you know what I did? I just picked it up and I went and put it away without a comment. She is still, and she's delightful, and she could stand up here and tell you all the things about me there still. We give each other grace. Yes, we've changed some, and we also just let some things go. Right? I, I find unopened mail, opened mail that we're done with, and I'm just thinking, why is this here? Like, why not throw that out? We'll just, we'll just, and I don't say anything. When she can't find her keys, I don't say, really? Really? I mean, if they were hanging on the duck hook in the kitchen where the keys go, we wouldn't be having this conversation, would we? That's what I used to do early in our marriage. And now I just get up. She used to be afraid to even admit she doesn't know where they are. But I could tell it's happening. She's looking for her keys. <laughs> and I go out of my way to say, you are more important than keys. I love you dearly. Let me help you find your keys. And I don't mean condescending where I'm like, yes, and when you grow up, you'll know where your keys are. I mean, literally. You've got to say, because I remember, because the counselor used it with us and I use it with counselees, Philippians 2, consider others better, esteem. And I remember sitting there thinking, but what if they're not better? I'm better, right? And you laugh, but that's our first thought. Like knowing where your keys are is better than not. Not necessarily. She loves people better than, and I don't want, want to make it sound like she just is filthy and doesn't know where anything is. She's not. We're talking about, I was excessive. I just, those kind of things were so important to me, but I learned to love people from her. I have changed. Being married to her has changed me in significant, God-glorifying, helpful ministry ways more than any book I've ever read. And I read at least 50 books a year. God knew I needed a woman who had the gift of mercy that loved people well he didn't think I needed a woman who closed the drawers and knew where her keys were, and God gives us different, and together he meant for this not to be a war, but an incredible blessing where we could serve God together and where I would become more like Jesus and she would become more like Jesus. But when you're busy judging each other and expecting each other, if God wanted two of you, which God, think of that, gasp. I rarely see a couple that, oh man, they are exactly alike. No, every now and then I run into it, but it's rare, it's rare. God doesn't usually do that, but this was meant to be something beautiful, and he did mean for each of you to have to die and begin, you know, because you're supposed to become one, but unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, there's something beautiful that happens, but death is the process of getting there. So as you hold on to your own life and think, but this is who, I, who I've always been and how I've always been and it's right, you're resisting what God wants to do. He intends to change each of you and there's good on both sides that God wants to bring together. You end up punishing each other. So I usually have to work my way back from punishment, let's stop the war, to what in the world, so you can imagine if this has been years getting back here, what are the things that you just begin to say 
you desired and where did it get off the rails that you began to demand and then how did you get here? Sometimes couples can't even remember. They can't even remember. They just know they hate each other. And there's still great hope. I've seen God work dramatically, dramatically. Tim Keller says, when we finally realize what keeps happening to us and how you keep getting disappointed in people as you bring too much expectation of what you want, there's four ways you can respond. He says, number one, you can blame the people or things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. That's a recipe for disaster. As you plow ahead into more and more idolatry, just thinking you haven't found the right combination of person or job or career or church, he says, number two, the second way you can respond is to blame yourself. Just beat yourself up. This is not the most popular day because blame is way more popular. But I do run into this every now and then. Self-loathing, kind of like the Eeyore. Oh, it's just me and everybody else has a good life but me. And there's something wrong with me. I guess I'm just a big loser. Self-loathing and shame. He said there's a third response to all this disappointment where you just blame everything everybody and you say curses on the entire human race i'm so done with people here's what i'm concerned about that's what i'm seeing in this last two years you guy guys and i'm running into more and more christians that are done with the church done i get it they've been hurt they said they felt attacked or whatever you cannot be done with the church the church is the bride of christ i always say when jesus is done i'll be done but he's not done with the church, and I know everything isn't easy, but he still intends to do what he's going to do in this world through his church, his church. Even the mess that it is and some of the pain, you can't be done. But I think, again, because of our culture and because of technology, we've got Christians that think, I've got a podcast, I can listen to good sermons, I can get great music, I don't have to have the church. You don't find that in the Bible. You don't find that in the Bible. And real stuff that God wants to work in your life will happen through being with other believers at close range. You gotta say, God, give me grace to lean back. Do you think I'm still the pastor at the same church? Do you think Tony's still at the same church because we've never been hurt? Think again. Think again. I know you think, oh, you must. There was this young guy in our church that was just struggling for career and direction in life, and he talked to me at the gym all the time, and we would meet for lunch. I'll never forget one day he said, Oh my goodness, you must get so much affirmation. It must be so wonderful to be a pastor. I think I'll, I was like, Ryan, stop right now. Please don't go into ministry because you think I'll be so affirmed. I'll never feel more love than I. It's brutal, brutal. The stuff that happened, the emails that come, you pour into somebody, pour into somebody, pour into somebody, and then they leave. And they don't just leave, they try to take others with them and they leave attacking you and you're like, Wait a minute, I was at the hospital for you. I counseled you. I'll never forget, it's happened so many times now that I'm no longer surprised. I met with this couple that had this horrific marriage. I mean, like, they lived forever away, pack a lunch, Kentucky. I drove an hour and 10 minutes to get to their house. I didn't even have them come to my office because they had eight kids, so I would go there, and this began with him calling me saying, Pastor Brad, she's in the kitchen, I'm in the pickup truck, she has a knife, we need help. Oh. Okay, bumping the road, huh? And I have to drive over there with another woman for the church, and we're there for our colossal mess. I met with them for 11 months, going every Tuesday all the way to Pack-a-Lunch, Kentucky, and back, and God broke through dramatically. The next Sunday, we were still meeting in Tur at Dixie High School. The next Sunday when I finished preaching, they're coming down the middle of the auditorium aisle and I step towards the front of the stage because I'm thinking, silly me, I'm thinking, they're, they're gonna wanna thank me. When they got right here, I'll never forget, they're holding hands because now they're reconciled and God used me to do that. She didn't have a knife in her hand, she's holding his hand. And they both looked up and said, if you don't start preaching that women should wear only dresses, we're gonna leave the church. I was like, did a dresses only pastor help you? I don't think so. <laughs> what in the world? I remember another one where a guy had committed adultery six times. It was the biggest mess. He actually got saved. There was a breakthrough. The next week, she wrote me this giant email with red exclamation points. I don't talk about Israel enough. And it's Israel, 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 Israel. Israel. Did Israel help you with your marriage? I don't think so. And they left the church and she took her brand new Christian husband with her and began to go to some one new house church with Catherine somebody who's an apostle. 
I could tell more. And here's what I've decided, and this is gonna make sense when you hear it. When people are hurting, they'll take help from anybody. And once they're okay, they shift back to their cause. As a pastor, you tend to think, once I've helped them, I've got them for life. They'll love me forever. No, they won't. I lost people that have been in my church for 20 years this last year over politics because I wouldn't preach about Marxism and socialism and I wouldn't take a stand against the tyranny of the government. And I kept preaching the gospel, which is what they came for and how they got saved. But now they left and they didn't just leave quietly. They left in a very hurtful, hurtful way. Thanks for being there for me. But listen, you got to decide, this is going to happen. I am still waking up excited to be a pastor. Not because of what I get back, but because he's called me and I know him. I get to sit at his feet and I better every morning for me. Sometimes I hear pastors say, oh, I don't have a set-aside Bible time for myself because I'm in God's Word all the time. <laughs> I think that's a really bad idea. I get the privilege of studying for two days on Romans or wherever we are too. I need time where I'm sitting, so I have a different Bible. It's back there in the hotel. I, I know this might sound silly, but I have a different Bible that is my morning Bible that I don't counsel with, I don't preach with, I don't do anything else with it. It's for me to just remind me, Brad Bigney has to have time sitting at the feet of Jesus, scooting up to the banquet table of God's word for me so that I would know him, love him, delight in him. He could reorient my thinking so that I can go through trials and adversity and not become bitter and not be done with the church or people. And you don't have to be a pastor to need to do that. You just have to be a sinner in a broken world to need to do that. Oh, you don't want to say curses on everyone. I'm done. It's just going to be me and Jesus. Because there's one more response that's the right one. He says, you can do what C.S. Lewis talks about. In his book, Mere Christianity, he has a wonderful chapter on hope towards the end. And in that great chapter of hope in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this. He talks about reorienting yourself away from this world and back towards God. It's what we're talking about this weekend and our relationship with him. He says, quote, if I find in myself a desire, a desire, which nothing in this world fully satisfies, my marriage is still just, or the kids, or the church, or my job. The most probable conclusion is that I was made for another world. You just keep remembering I was made for another world. I'm here now, but it's never going to fully satisfy. I'm here now. It's never going to fully satisfy. As we close, go with me to Romans chapter 8. That is, you know, often Christians, one of their favorite chapters. Tons of people have memorized it. But I think we often miss some of the good stuff in the, er, in the middle section. We sometimes start with Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together, and then it goes in that glorious chapter, nothing can separate us from his love, neither height, nor depth, nor breadth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. It's a glorious conclusion. But there's a place that Christians would do well to get a hold of. We're starting in, in verse 19 of chapter eight, it says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the, I want you to hear three words that are used over and over that I call it a threefold cord that's woven through this chunk of verses. Waiting, hoping, groaning. You realize complaining's a sin. In the book of Numbers, the ground opened up and swallowed them. Groaning and lamenting is not. There's a difference. You realize 53 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lamentation where a believer is groaning out loud in prayer to God and saying, life's hard. How long, O oh Lord? It's as if you're not, it's okay to complain out loud to God in prayer. That's why those psalms are there. It expresses some of our emotions that sometimes we do feel abandoned. Sometimes it does look like the wicked have it better than we do. Sometimes it does seem like I'm not hearing from God groaning because you know something's wrong in this world. Things aren't like they should be. Listen for it. 
hoping, waiting, groaning. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. There's that broken cistern. Everything in this world has a measure of futility. Friendship, marriage, parents, churches, careers, it leaks. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Talking about God. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, talking about believers, we ourselves groan. It's okay to groan when you think, oh, the world's a mess. Oh, this is scary. Oh, look at your groaning. There's a place for that. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We should live hoping. And hoping isn't like the way we use it in our, in our English language. Well, I hope. You think the Bengals will win today? Well, I hope so. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of future blessing based on the character and promises of God. When the Bible talks about hope and the Bible writers say hope in the Lord, it's a confident expectation of future blessing and it's based on something, the character and promises of God. We have hope that's fixed outside this world and we wait and waiting is not a waste either. Think about when the Bible talks about waiting. My favorite place is that glorious chapter in Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord. We tend to think, I'm waiting. She hasn't come out of the house yet. I'm waiting, waste of time. Again, it's a different kind of waiting in the Bible. There's a huge blessing. Those who wait, because biblical wait in the Hebrew is leaning forward expectant. He's up to something. God's at work. God's at work. Those who wait on the Lord will rise up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. And even in that, notice, that is put together in a way that's backwards from what we would think, is it not? Like, why would you say those that, we love soaring. The best-selling Christian books are not gospel treason. It's books that, with the secret of soaring. What are the five keys to living above it all in the zone? I don't want to be down in the trenches with struggle anymore, right? Every book that has key in it, you know, secret key. We're always trying to figure out a way for life to not be hard. He never said it wouldn't be hard. So it starts off, those that wait on the Lord will soar like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Here's why I think it's put, put together that way, and that's Isaiah 40, 31 for what it's worth because it's not in your notes. God knows something about the Christian life that we struggle to come to grips with and accept. You ready? The bulk of your Christian life will be very ordinary taking the next step. Just taking the next step. I have had seasons of soaring. I hope there's some soaring ahead of me. But the bulk of my life and ministry has been, will you just take the next step? Take the next step. Take the next step. It's quite pedestrian and ordinary. Our world is all about flashy. Our world is all, all about spectacular. God's not. Lord, I'll take the next step. I'll take the next step. Groaning appropriately. Hoping. Don't lose hope. Because you know who God is and you know some of his promises. And then waiting. It's coming. I say to our church family all the time, you're not home yet. You're not home. This is Motel 6. We'll keep the light on. <laughs> this is not home. You know, we got Christians that keep, they're trying to make it home. It's like, the, the New Testament letters really inform us of how we should think about ourselves. You ever think about this? Look at how the writers talk about us. Foreigners, strangers, pilgrims, exiles. It sounds like people that won't be here long and don't belong. 
more and more if you say, I just don't feel comfortable anymore in my America. Perfect. You're not, you never were supposed to feel to- totally comfortable. You're not home. We're a remnant. We're his people. He's with us, and he's coming back. And he's using us. He wants to use us in the meantime, not just hunker down, find a piece of land, and huddle up with Christians and homeschool. No. Engage. Go to a regular gym. Live in a regular neighborhood. And he can use us, but he's going to use us more as we get free of what we're bringing into every situation. A heart that's saying, oh man, you, you are what I need. You're what I need. Thank you, Lord. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your unchanging character. Lord, would you show us what's going on in us so that we might first make peace with ourselves and you and then have less war with others around us that you might use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.